Our second reading this morning is from Joshua chapter 10, verses 36 through 43. You can find this on page 219 in the Pew Bible and up on the screens. Hear the word of God. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its kings and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon, and he devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathe, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as the Gaza and all of the country at Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, please open our ears to hear your word. Open our minds to understand your word. Open our hearts to receive your word and bless our hands and feet to do your word in Jesus' name, amen. I own a lot of books, which is an understatement. Now and then, I'll want to reread one or look something up in one. So as I begin looking for that specific book, in my mind, I hold an image of it, what it looks like. Yet often, I can search and search and search and not find it. I'm certain I know what I'm looking for because I can see it in my imagination. Well, that is until I actually do see it miraculously on the shelf and its actual color and appearance are nowhere near what I was thinking they were. But until I see the actual book again, I'm sure I know what it looks like and even after seeing it for a few moments, I'm still convinced What I imagine the book looked like is how it's supposed to look like, even though it doesn't. So what's the point of this story? Well, in my last two sermons, I said something that in my mind seemed right, even though it wasn't. I misspoke, and I finally realized this last Monday night. It was a hand-to-forehead, I-could-have-had-a-V8-duh moment, followed by a boy, is this embarrassing reddening of the face moment. What I've been saying is that all of the original, of all the original Israelites who had left Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb survived and entered Canaan. What I should have said is that they were the only two survivors of the original 12 spies. I knew better, but was fixated on my error. There were actually others who survived the wilderness and entered the promised land. We can read about them in Numbers 13 and 14. 
the references I've been giving for the story of Joshua and Caleb, chapters I've revisited several times over the past several weeks, and chapters where this passage, for whatever reason, remained invisible to me. Now, did anyone else bother to look up Numbers 13 and 14 over the past weeks? Okay. So, let's go there now. On our, you can use your device Bible, but no peeking at your email or Facebook. Or in the Pew Bibles. Everyone has one. On page 144, and let's look up Numbers 14, verses 28 through 30. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua and Caleb, as well as the teens, preteens, toddlers, and tots, who left Egypt, entered the promised land. Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the 12 spies who survived and entered the promised land. So my apologies for the error. I'm sure Pastor Dan in the session will be giving me a good talking to later. But I am kind of wondering why no one else caught this error and called me out on it. There's a few people that came to mind when I had made this realization. You know, one of the reasons we provide pew Bibles is so that you can fact check the sermons. Uh, if I or anyone else who gets up here misspeaks, please don't hesitate to corner us gently later after the service and point out our error. We're all in this together and we need each other's iron to sharpen our own iron, if you will. But since we're here in numbers, let's take a look at a few things before we get back to the second half of Joshua 10. Numbers chapters 13 and 14 reveal a nation that was not unified, not obedient, and as a result, not always recipients of God's blessings. The people of of Israel had been in Exodus away from Egypt for a little over two years. They were moving through the Sinai Peninsula, heading toward the Promised Land, and are stopped in the wilderness of Paran, below the southern border of the land of Canaan. There's actually a map in your bulletin if you're curious. They are primed to enter the promised land. And the Lord tells Moses to send out 12 men to spy out the land. Look at the very areas we've talked about in Joshua and that we're going to be talking about in Joshua. And at the end of 40 days, the spies return to camp and report. Numbers 13, 26 to 33 tells us what happened. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the lamb. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It blows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell there in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea all along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said... Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. 
So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. This big. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Oi, Nephilim and a lot of ites and grasshoppers, oh my. Moving from claiming the land flows with milk and honey to declaring it's a land that devours its inhabitants is a definite 180. And it's an example of why majority rule is not always a good thing. The land they are talking about was promised to them way back in Genesis 15:18, where the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And in Numbers 13, 1 and 2, it was just reiterated when the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. One has to wonder... What part of I am giving these people didn't get? As I mentioned earlier, this is a nation that was not unified, not obedient, and as a result, not always recipients of God's blessings. This is made abundantly clear in the first first four verses of Numbers 14, which states, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, I take it back. In weeping and wailing, grumbling and complaining, wishing they died in the wilderness and wanting to go back into captivity, they were unified, but around the wrong things. And seriously, go back? It was as if they were thinking of their years in captivity as the good old days. Something is really askew in their heads and hearts. Joshua and Caleb do their best to straighten everyone out. Look at verse 7. They tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. If the Lord delights in us means if we are obedient, then the land is for the taking. These two guys understand that when God says, I'm giving this to you, he means just that. But how do these people respond? Verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Okay, once more, the people are unified. But they are united in disobedience and are about to be cursed. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. This is a severe threat. 
To summarize the rest of the chapter, Moses intercedes and saves their ungrateful hides. God relents from the immediate destruction, calls them a wicked congregation, and curses them to wander in the desert for 40 years until all are dead except for Joshua and Caleb and those 19 and younger. After all this, the people mourn, go to bed, and get up early the next morning, cowed and repentant and ready to obey the Lord, right? Nope. They decide to take matters into their own hands and head into the promised land to do battle, saying, as rendered in the New American Standard Bible, here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. Once more, they're unified around the wrong thing. They've been told now to not enter the promised land. But, you know, maybe God wasn't serious. Moses warns them, saying, Why now are you transgressing the, transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. Again, this was a nation that was not unified, at least not around the right things, not obedient, and as a result, not always recipients of God's blessing. You know the rest of the story. They went in, were defeated, and then wandered around the Sinai Desert for 40 years, getting their heads and hearts realigned to the will of God. When God calls a people on a mission, he will do to those people whatever is needed to bring them in line to his will so they will be successful in the completion of his mission. If the people are obedient and align with his will, God is among them and will bring blessings. If, however, they are a wicked congregation, ignore God's direction, try to take things into their own hands, there will be discipline, correction, and sometimes painful realignment. It's a cautionary tale to be sure. So now, let's jump back to Joshua 10. The time in the wilderness has served Joshua well. All it has, Although it has to have been frustrating, having seen the promised land, understood it was theirs for the taking, and then being made to wait 40 years before being able to receive it. Still, he had 40 plus years of serving alongside Moses and caring for the people. Years of learning about God and how to worship him. Years of learning the value of obedience. He walked the children of Israel across dry land on the riverbed of the Jordan, established a camp at Gilgal, saw the fall of Jericho, worked through the sin of Achan, took down Ai, and was tricked by the Gibeonites. As did Moses, Joshua makes mistakes. But he also learns from them and recovers quickly, understanding the importance of obedience before there could be blessings. And he understood the importance of being united around the right things. Unity is one of the big themes of the book of Joshua. The term all Israel appears in Joshua 17 times in the ESV. In some instances, this is clearly hyperbole, meaning literally not every single person of the children of Israel is included. But the message is that in general, as a whole, they were united. For example, Joshua 3, 7 states, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And in 4.14, 
On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The message is clear that, as a nation, they are in agreement. Sure, there may have been one or two holdouts who didn't admire Joshua, but there's always at least one, right? What is being clearly communicated is that this is a nation, a congregation of believers who are unified. They are on the same page. The nation as a whole is finally of one mind and in one accord. They had to be unified in order to accomplish all they had accomplished up until the middle of chapter 10, and they truly have to be unified in order to accomplish all that's coming next in chapter 10 and beyond. So, here they are at Makeda, at the end of the extended day. The five kings are sealed in a cave where they tried to hide. Joshua brings them out and uses them as graphic visual aids. First, the kings are laid out on the ground and Joshua has his chiefs place their feet on the necks of the kings. This is the concept of Psalm 110.1 where it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Joshua shares the same encouragement he has received from God, telling his men, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Second, he executes the kings and hangs their bodies so they can be seen by the enemies of Israel. This is a clear message that destruction awaits all those who oppose Israel and thus oppose God. But... Joshua is careful to take the bodies down and bury them according to the law as stated in Deuteronomy 21, 22 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable, punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Joshua has learned the importance of obedience. The bodies are placed in the cave where the king sought safety and the cave is sealed with a heap of stones, something we've seen in Joshua several times, stones that serve as a memorial of their victory. The long day ends with the fall of Makeda. Makeda is the first of seven cities to fall as listed in the end of chapter 10. One after another. Makeda, then Libna, then Lachish, then Gezer, then Eglon, then Hebron, and finally Debir fall. This is one extended campaign that's known as the Southern Conquest. All of these cities were located south of Jericho. While only seven cities are listed, and seven is the number of perfection in the Bible, other cities also fell. This is merely a summary of the entire campaign. But note verses 30 and 32. The Lord gave these cities into the hand of Israel, just as he had promised centuries before. Through this extended campaign, there are no more AI failures, no more Gibeonite deceptions, and no more Achan disobedience. Why were they successful? Because they were unified around the right things, obedient to the word of God, and on the receiving end of God's blessing. Look at verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. 
Everything they accomplished was due to God fighting for them and giving the land into their hands. It had little to do with their prowess as warriors. When we land on the last verse in 10, there's a tangible sense of completion. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Don't you just love it when a plan comes together? Now, last week, I ended on a single point. I want to share that again, but with a little tweaking. When God's people are in sync with and unified around his will, walking in obedience to his word, then he is there in their midst and striving with them, and together they will accomplish great things that will stun, silence, and transform a watching and hurting world. Here at HVP, our session, the Board of Elders, seeks to discern the will of God for our church. The overarching known will of God is stated in the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The the desire of the session is to hear God's voice and determine how he wants us, a local expression of the body of Christ, to specifically fulfill the Great Commission here in Huntington Valley. No leader in this church, whether on staff, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a committee chair, a small group leader, or any other leader, acts frivolously or independently doing things just because they want to. At least, I've not witnessed this so far. But what I have witnessed are leaders who look into God's word, pray together, share their hearts with each other, and strive to ensure that all they do, whether tending to a trivial detail or taking on a larger project, that they do these things in the will of God, to the glory of God, with the intent to best serve the people of God, as well as effectively reach out to the lost in our community. For any church to be successful, there needs to be unity around the right things. Starting points for determining what the right things are here include the Great Commission, as well as our own HVPC mission statement, which reads, For God's glory and by his power, we are a fellowship of sinners who worship God, study God's word, love all people, and share the hope we have in Jesus Christ. In other words, our service is not about us. It's not about pursuing self-interest, getting our own way, insisting on our own rights, resisting like the post-Egypt, pre-Jordan crossing Israelites who were ready to reject Moses and Aaron and choose a new leader to take them back to Egypt to the good old days. Hebrews 13, 17 exhorts us to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. In Numbers, we saw the Israelites being a source of groaning and trouble for Moses and Aaron. Now they are a source of joy for Joshua. It took 40-plus years of arduous realignment for the children of Israel to finally understand the necessity and value of uniting behind the leaders that God gave them. They also learned the value and necessity of obedience. Forty years prior, Joshua told them that if the Lord delighted in them, meaning if they were obedient, 
the promised land would be given to them. The same is true for us. Obedience to God's word is an absolute priority. We can't cherry-pick the Bible and pay attention only to the parts we like or that we are comfortable with or that make us feel warm and fuzzy. Recall the renewal of the covenant that took place after the fall of Ai. Joshua brings the people to the word. In chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, we see Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Why did he do this? They had just suffered a loss of 36 men because of the sin of Achan. They had to root out the sin and purify their camp before they could restart their conquest of the land. Joshua is reminded the, reminding the people, discipling them, of all that God's word says. Blessing and curse, easy and difficult. He's teaching them that the blessing, the receiving of the promised land, will be theirs but only if they are unified around the right things and obedient to God's word and his leadership. They got on the same page, followed Joshua's leadership, and in one long campaign conquered city after city after city. What had been promised was now becoming a reality. The same is true for us. Serving in unity and obedience to the right things will bring blessings to HVPC as we pursue the mission God has given us here in Huntington Valley. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mission you've called us to here in Huntington Valley. Give us wisdom and courage as we seek to complete your work in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.